and thank you for tuning into episode 11 of the CurvaCast podcast. This episode is also special because it happens to be our final episode for season one. We will be back with season two in the fall of 2021. And just to remind you that CurvaCast is a weekly podcast and an initiative of the Carver Project. The goal of the podcast is to engage with Christian faculty in higher education and highlight their work, so that's their scholarship, their teaching and service, to bridge connections between university, church, and society. My name is Penina Achayo-Laker, and I'm here with my most esteemed co-host, John Inazu. John and I are both faculty at Washington University in St. Louis and fellows with the Carver Project. Today, we are honored to spend time talking with Paul Lim. Paul, welcome to the CarvaCast. Thank you. This is a great privilege and honor for me. Paul, it's so great to have you uh, with us. I was thinking, you know, as we get going here, uh, given your background and expertise, we should have had Mark Valeri interview you, but actually you'll be stuck with, you know, some non-specialists to <laughs> make you... Mark has uh, been great, you. but you're equally as good, so... <laughs> well, thanks. We'll, we'll, try to, we'll try to keep up. Um, but uh, you, as, as a historian of religion, uh, you certainly would have some resonance with, with others in our orbit. But um, Paul, we're so glad to have you with us and so much uh, exciting things we can talk about. I wonder, maybe just to get started, though, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got into uh, the teaching role that you have? Hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, so I did my undergraduate degree at a certain finishing school in New Haven, Connecticut, founded in 1701. Uh, it's <laughs> a.k.a. Yale University. And I started my undergraduate career as a non-Christian. Um, and I became uh, converted to the Christian faith as a junior um, at Yale. And at that moment, I had no, during that time period, I was an econ major. I thought I was going to be, uh, you know, doing econ or finance and work in either law or, um, financial services. Uh, little did I realize at that time that God will have a longer and a different plan for me to be in school. So I, um, worked in New York for about a year, year and a half, in the in, in the area of corporate finance and uh, liked it, but I felt like maybe this isn't what I should be doing. So um, to make a long story short, I went to uh, learn more about scriptures. I went to a seminary just to learn more about the Bible, but God had a different plan. So I ended up staying in school longer. I ended up doing my PhD in the history of Christianity uh, in England. So um, I did English history and for what I did, uh, Cambridge University was one of the better places to do it. So I did that. And my wife and I were planning to go overseas to teach, uh, particularly in India. But the Lord had a different plan. So I guess the tagline for my interview is, the Lord had a different plan. So <laughs> I may plan some things, but they don't really seem to occur. And But I never, um, I seldom regard my life Notice I changed from never to seldom. I seldom <laughs> regard my life a failed one because to the extent that I acknowledge my own idolatry of wanting to be in control of my life journey, uh, to the similar extent, if not the same extent, I find my life a frustrating one or, or even think that I'm not doing well. So I think my daily, if not hourly struggle is just surrendering to God. My, I have my own plans, but God may have a different plan. So um, how I came into teaching, and then uh, the Lord closed the door to India 
opened up the door to Boston. So I taught at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary for five years. But as I mentioned in the uh, at the outset, I became a Christian at a secular university as a junior. There was no um, mentor for me. So I think by and large, I went into the secular academy wanting to be a Christian presence, wanting to mentor Christian students, and also be in a, a, an academic context where um, it wasn't as confessionally driven. So I ended up mm-hmm. coming to Vanderbilt University in the fall of 2006, and I've been here for the, this is my 15th year. So, um, mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed many aspects of being a university faculty. Um, there are some other things that we can certainly talk about, but that's how I got into it. Wow, that, that's amazing. Paul, I'm, I'm curious, since mm-hmm. you also have an education in e- economics and you said you practiced um, in corporate finance, has, has any of that still found or like trickled its way into uh, what you'd now do today? Yeah, so not in terms of my own professional research and writing so much, mm-hmm. but uh, I also serve at a local church as a, a scholar in residence. Mm-hmm. And one of the roles that I get to fulfill there is that we have a... Um, a program that was, uh, uh, John and, and perhaps you, Penina, know about this as well, is uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church's thing called the Redeemer Center for Faith and Work. They have a lot of kind of offshoots or satellites or whatever you, uh, branch offices or programs. And Nashville has uh, something similar. Uh, it's uh, Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. So I have been their principal teacher for the last four years. And um, so I am, I don't know the exact nomenclature, but I think something about senior advisor for content. So I am, so right now we're actually doing a beta program of um, foundations of faith and work. So it's, um, it's not Redeemer's program as much as I'm actually just coming up uh, with a program on my own. It's an eight week intensive that we're running uh, for our midweek services. So you know, since COVID has happened, midweek mm-hmm. or Sunday, those things don't mean that much anymore. So we're doing a Zoom call and it's been really a fantastic journey. So to that extent, I am uh, using some of it, but I guess I never, when I was an econ major, I never thought about the Bible. And then, now that I think about the Bible, I'm actually not doing much with economics. And, you know, aside from maybe thinking about my own investment portfolio here and there, you know, whether to buy this stock or that <laughs> stock. But aside from that, no. So I think so. I'm trying to kind of bridge the chasm a little bit myself, um, mm-hmm. just really thinking more confessionally and critically about the workplace and how faith can kind of uh, be interwoven or integrated to it. And uh, if they don't get integrated, what are some of the perils and uh, what are some of the other avenues that would actually provide some kind of possibility for growth and discipleship? And these things, I guess, used to be more uh, the kind of language, the so Christianese that I would speak, but I realized more and more, you know, life is short, and I really want to try to practice what I preach or proclaim. And I think the whole uh, intersection between faith and work, both in my own life journey, as well as the journey of so many, um, has been so vital for me to think about. Um, oh, I love that. And I love how um, the model that you're describing just fits right into the heartbeat of the Carver Project as we think about the intersection of university, church, and society. And to me, the the scholar-in-residence model at Christ Presbyterian and with our friend Scott Sauls that you're a mm-hmm. part of, I just, I just think that's so uh, remarkable and, and exemplary. Uh, I wonder, as you've been formally... Uh, affiliated with a church and and yet also being a university professor, 
are there ways in which you either feel or have experienced uh, being misunderstood uh, by the church, uh, you know, as a, as a professor at, at Vanderbilt and uh, any, any experience or wisdom you've gained from some of those misunderstandings? Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, my own kind of life journey has made me increasingly okay with the fact that I don't really fit in 100%, right? And I think, John, you and I talked about this before, about just what it means to be, I mean, for you, it's even more complicated being a biracial person. And for me as an Asian American, what does that mean for me to be here to talk about justice, to be an advocate for change and you know, be in support of Black Lives Matter, on the other hand. Um, and so I think it's been a very, so I am too conservative for my progressive friends, and I am way too progressive for my conservative friends. So it kind of gets split right down, not right down the middle, but roughly down the middle. So the Vanderbilt University is more progressive space, Christ Presbyterian is more conservative space. Of course, there will be outliers in both these kind of, uh, you know, ecosystems. And um, so... You know, being misunderstood, I think, is something that uh, comes as a, uh, you know, it's like a, it's par for the course. So not miss, but so I, I think, you know, when I was younger, so I'm 53 now, when I was in my 40s, I desperately sought to be understood and embraced by people. You know, I want to be recognized. I want to be liked. I want to be respected. Not that I've thrown those things to the wind now, but, you know, I think I think about them <laughs> slightly less. I, you know, I didn't say substantially less, but slightly less. And I think thinking really more about um, how do I really try to follow the good Lord today uh, where I'm situated? So not wishing I was somewhere else, not hoping that, you know, this life here just really sucks. I got to be somewhere else, but just really thinking, okay, if I really have a, a pretty robust theology of providence that God knows what God is doing and God has placed me here for some reason, they may be beyond my own kind of understanding. Then how do I then follow the good Lord here if I really trust in the goodness of God? So I think, you know, of course, there. Are, uh, I mean, I think there are no perfect jobs. And if there are, I shouldn't go join it because I'll ruin it because I'm imperfect myself. And so but I think, you know, there are lots of opportunities for me uh, to be engaging with people, both at Christ Press and Vanderbilt. I think in, in, in different ways slightly, but at the end of the day, um, people are people. I think we all have that sort of a. Uh, um, that inner emptiness that can only be filled by the triune God. And so, and I think, you know, when I think about the whole, the stupendous nature of what it means to image uh, this triune God as we bear the image of God within us, um, it's such a daunting challenge, but also the Holy Spirit within us um, is uh, empowering us and encouraging us in that journey. And so, um, I, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I become a lot more self-conscious about, talking about these things um, because I also recognize so immediately, um, you know, the gap between um, our proclamation and our own practice. So um, this was, yeah, it was so encouraging and also challenging to hear you just say all of that. And it reminds me when I, when I was on the job market 10 years ago and had an offer from Wash U, and at the time my family and I were living in Durham, North Carolina, and we knew nobody in St. Louis and we didn't want to come to St. Louis and it felt very far away from everything we knew. And a friend of mine said, you know, if you're serious about this academic vocation thing as a calling from God and where you're supposed to be, then 
you know, just as some people are called to go around the globe to strange and un- unfamiliar places, being called to a nice university in St. Louis is not exactly, the, you know, the, the hardest <laughs> calling of all. <laughs> um, but yeah. then to, to wrestle with that and to be, you know, as you just said, to be, be content, but also recognize that you're here for a reason, maybe just for a season, but at least for a season and maybe longer that you're here by God's grace and, and by God's desire and to, to ask the questions of what does that mean? What comes next, what comes next for me here, as opposed to, you know, what other things could I be doing with my life? Hmm. Yeah. yeah. The, there's a way you've, you phrased it. You, 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 you paused the question of yourself um, that I think said something like, how do I follow the good Lord here in this moment, in the here and now? And, and how, how do I just not like wish or want to pick up and move and take yes. that? You know, yes. easy way out. And I thought, I think to what John was saying, that really speaks volumes to um, that that nature of trusting um, that God that's placed you yeah. in there where you are right now for a season and for a purpose. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I was talking to um, someone, uh, I think slightly younger than me, and, and I think she was uh, inquisitive as to whether I regret not going to X, Y, and Z places. Uh, since coming to Nashville. And I said to her, you know what, uh, about this and that other institution, I might have some regrets, but what does it profit me now? Right. So now then she goes, do you acknowledge that you made a mistake? I said, uh, no, I, I, I don't think so. I, I think one, I mean, this is a sort of mystery of providence, right? And mystery, so let's say there is a, a rule book that God, I mean, some kind of playbook that a God has for me, right? Let's say we're playing in the NFL or soccer or, you know, well, let's say the NF basketball or football, the coach kind of lays out the play and it is up to us to execute that play. Um, and there is obviously going to be the gap between the design and, and the execution. And so then if you don't do it the way that the coach laid out or you're an abject failure, or do we even know what that is? Right. So, I mean, so in the case of football and basketball, you do know what the plays are. I think with, with my life, you know, does God care whether I teach at Wash you or SLU or Duke or Chapel Hill? I don't know. I don't think so. Does God care? <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> so I think it is important for me to think about the fact that God has given me some general parameters for following God and loving God and loving neighbor. And the specifics of how I am to love God and love neighbor um, mm-hmm. are, I think, what I would call the kind of a, a, a synergy between God's generally revealed will and the specific kind of it's like a dance, right? I mean, dancing with the star, right? I mean, it's dancing with the God, you know, the God of God of the entire universe. And so I I think, so I, I told this, uh, you know, friend of mine that I don't live with regrets. I mean, sometimes I think about that, you know, I wonder what it would have been, but it's not because, oh, I should have taken that job. No, I think it's just, you know, it's human to wonder about these things and ponder these realities, but it's not really stemming from this you know, insufferable kind of anguish about how loath, how much loathing I have for my present circumstances. Far from it. I was telling a friend mm-hmm. of mine that, you know what, I get paid reasonably well to think about stuff, to write stuff that only eight people in the world read, you know, <laughs> and published with some university press that, you know, my wife and my sister, both of whom are really well-educated people, they both kind of lamented the fact that I don't write anything for the lay people. And my sister in particular asked me, 
She said, when are you going to write something that I can actually read and understand? <laughs> no, no. I mean, just to give you a sort of context, she's a U Chicago undergrad, U Chicago MD. She read, you know, like uh, all kinds, you know, because they're a great books program. She's actually deeply read. She did French literature and, and biochemistry. So she knows high level kind of humanity stuff. And yes, she says, I try to read your last book, you know, the first chapter. You lost me in page three. <laughs> so I think that's something that I've been thinking a lot about. You know, um, God is so the economy of the university and the academy is such that I got to be writing for the invisible eight people who's going to decide whether this will be a prize winning book or not. And whether they, you know, and so while there is these are the sort of rules and regulations that are intrinsic to my this particular ecosystem that I must abide by. But as a Christian, I do wonder about, you know, what does that mean for uh, for me to do something beyond the immediate confines of my economy. I mean, I think I think about you, John, your work about that uh, confident pluralism book. I read that. I was like, you know what? I wish I'd written that. <laughs> or, or, I mean, like, you know, since we're kind of talking, we can edit it out later. You know, C.S. Lewis, right? I mean, he was a professor of Renaissance literature at both at Oxford and, and at Cambridge. And, you know, his colleagues were not always that happy with his stuff. Why? Because now he's really known as a Renaissance English literature guy, but that book almost nobody reads. And right. yet it's stuff about Chronicle, you know, uh, Chronicles of Narnia and all this other stuff that 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 he's known for. And in a similar way, actually, Tolkien. Right. I mean, like his whole stuff as a, uh, uh, you know, uh, professor of Norse literature and, you know, like. Most people don't know, but they know him through, um, you know, that Lord of the Rings trilogy. So meaning this, that I think, you know, there is, is there some time in your career or journey as a scholar or as an academic where you decide, you know, I think I've done this enough and I'm going to try to get to more popular audience. I mean, I think I was telling a friend of mine who's, um, um, who was curious about New Testament scholarship. Actually, this is a guy who's a, you know, serial entrepreneur. And, but I told him about N.T. Wright, right? N.T. Wright is St. Andrews. Um, to the scholars, he's known as N.T. Wright, but to the lay people, he's known as Tom Wright. And he writes for two different kinds of audiences. And I, I think, I, I guess I mentioned this, I belabor this obviously kind of obtuse point, but because uh, this is what I've been thinking a lot about, you know, um, for my next 10 years, 15 years, who's going to be my primary audience? So I studied with someone named Eamon Duffy when I was at Cambridge, and he has he has done both. He's done a remarkable work as a Reformation historian, and that was his like phase one of his life journey as a scholar. But then more recently, he's been writing popular books, and so and his um, and I think he was actually encouraging me to uh, begin to think about that. And I have another friend, um, Peter, who's um, for whom writing for the popular audience is an anathema because. That's not what scholars do or should do. So I think in terms of calling, and I think it is also more peculiarly kind of parsed out, especially for Christians, especially for, I guess for me, because I wear the other hat as a scholar in residence, you know, I think I'm not preaching for eight people, you know, I'm preaching for several hundred people. And because everything is on Zoom now or YouTube, the good Lord knows how many people will be viewing it. So, um, so I have to think about the, sort of popular, um, not popular as in popularity, but greater populace may be interacting with what I have to say and think and write. 
Yeah, uh, wow, so much in there for. Chris. Sorry, I just went on a soliloquy <laughs> no, no, bomb here. No, I was actually it was it was so wonderful to hear you say that. I think about, I mean, unsurprisingly, the same set of questions. Um, you know, on the bright side, one of your eight readers is Mark Valeri, so you can you can be great. <laughs> Um, Okay. I I do think, I mean, the broader point um, that all of us struggle with as faculty, we, by the nature of our craft, we have to be excellent at what we do in a very small lane, Uh, you Mm -hmm. know, for like the tenure standards at a place like yours or ours. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to be a national or international leader in your field. And not everyone can do that, but it's necessarily specialized and and yet you can't really fake it. You really do have to be that good mm-hmm. at a subspecialty that eventually won't be understood by a lot of people, right? No. Just like you yeah. said. And so, therefore, mm-hmm. <laughs> for the Christian, the other part of the question is, what else does this mean for my life? And for some, I mean, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer. So for some, you know, like the, the lab researcher who's helping find a cure for cancer I mean, you know, God bless that person. Keep, keep, stay in the lab. Keep working at it, right? We don't need you doing public lectures. But, right. but for the rest of us, including all three of us on this call, I, I, or, I do think that there's this ever-present question of how are we translating the work that we do for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of the people around us, and the the balance you know it's not going to be a one size fits all answer but the 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 question is so important and and i think about it all the time so thank you for raising that and mm-hmm. um you know there's also i guess ages and stages to this right pre tenure you're probably not going to spend right. a lot of time <laughs> although penny now you do quite a bit of this stuff so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right but there, yeah there are as you as you recognize, oh, you know what? I actually have made uh, a dent in this very small slice of the world, uh, and now I can use that, leverage that for different kinds of opportunities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder since we're talking about the uh, the books for eight people, let's uh, <laughs> let's give you an odd opportunity to translate that knowledge more broadly. So tell us, you know, for a generalist audience and for two fellow scholars who, who know nothing of your uh, specialized area, uh, tell us a little bit about what your focus is, how you got there and, and what you love about it. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think there's there, my research has been more sequential in nature. So when I was a grad PhD student, uh, from 97 to 2001, uh, I worked on a uh, pretty well-known uh, English Puritan by the name of Richard Baxter. And I was interested in his ecclesiology, or as uh, one historian calls it, uh, the experience of defeat of um, among uh, John Milton and Richard Baxter and others in terms of being ousted from the uh, Church of England uh, with the return of both the episcopacy and the monarchy under Charles II. So I wrote about the experience of defeat for Richard Baxter. And I guess, uh, you know, so not that we are what we write about, but I do think that there may be, not always, but there may be some autobiographical elements for what, why certain subjects kind of grab our interest. And for me, I, you know, my father was a political prisoner in South Korea so I didn't see my dad from grade three through five. So from nine to about 11, 
12 years old. And so I think I was kind of drawn to talking about and telling the story of the, you know, uh, putative losers of history, right? So uh, Baxter mm -hmm. is not a loser, but like, you know, they were dissenters, they were ejected ministers, and they were kicked out of the Church of England. Their, their children could not go to Oxford or Cambridge, be, unless you were Anglican, unless you're Episcopalian. And so, um, you know, talk about kind of draconian measures that are placed upon you. So that was my first book. But I think my advisor thought that I was much more interested in theology than history. And so my first book was on Richard Baxter's ecclesiology, which means what he thought about the church, a gathered community of the followers of Jesus. And so that was published um, by a very prominent and simultaneously very obscure press, Dutch press called Brill. And that did whatever it did, you know. And then a few years, a few years later, um, I uh, so the second project was something about uh, the questions about the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, is it true that the Christian God or the God of this cosmos is uh, someone who is self-existing, you know, uh, as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? And so I, my, so as a historian, I am interested in theology. That means that I talk about these ideas in the historical context. So if I'm a legal historian, I'll be talking about the development of, you know, um, international law or a concept of internationality during the time of uh, 17th century thinkers like Hobbes or Grotius and so on. So I think the second book be, uh, was about the Trinity as it was debated and disputed uh, in the 17th century context. So, um, and I published that with, with a lesser obscure press uh, called Oxford University Press, and and that did um, in the scholarly world it 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 did well. It it um, you know whatever like you know, gay, um, getting um, book prizes or uh, you know being reviewed by a number of journals or having your book be the topic of you know conference uh, panels and. So it did, but then, you know, my wife and sister read it and, you know, they didn't understand <laughs> it. And so then the third book that I've been working on for quite some time um, is on uh, Christology. So meaning this, like if the God, so the whole problem about the Trinity had to do with, with Jesus. I mean, is this guy, Jesus, who walked among us and with us for about three decades plus, was he really, is he really God? And to what extent is his divinity something that we can meaningfully ascribe to the Christian God or the God of Israel? And so that is my current research project and to be read by about eight or hopefully about 11 people. But, uh, <laughs> but I have a popular book in the making somewhere. And that is, um, I, I am interested in, because I was having breakfast with, you know, John and, and Penina, um, like my, uh, my role as a scholar in residence helps me a lot because lay people want to know what I'm working on. And I have mm. to explain to them why it is, like why it is that I'm working on this stuff. And then one of the guys who is, uh, you know, has been in insurance business for like 40 years and has just retired said to me something like this, Paul, you know, that project sounds really fascinating. But, you know, since you're writing about Jesus, why don't you write about Jesus for uh, for today or Something like that. And I said, yeah, I guess that is interesting. And he goes, no, it's not only interesting, he says, it is very important. And mm -hmm. he said, you know, maybe you scholars always think about interesting topics, but don't you have to somehow and sometime think about important topics? And I said, you know, so-and-so, you nailed it. I mean, <laughs> that's right, because I think, you know, um, I have many historian colleagues for whom, and not not always, but, you know, things that are 
just whatever uh, suits your intellectual fancy is what you're going to work on. Whether it has mm-hmm. anything to do with questions of today or not is not as important. And so I think, you know, the whole nature of historiography, this is now being geeky as a historian, is that, you know, should we care about what is going on today and retrospectively look back at how some of those issues were talked about? I think it is a, it is a very, very important. So I think my next book project will be, uh, so the one that I'm writing is a, a book on Christology, so doctrines of Christ in between the Reformation and the Enlightenment period. And to put it very simply for lay um, audiences, uh, the question is about why is it that the belief in the divinity of Jesus became much more interrogated and disputed and and repudiated Mm -hmm. by some? And how does it then pave way for the Enlightenment? I mean, Jesus is seen as my homeboy or best man ever, but not, and maybe son of God, but by the you know, Appalachian's son of God, that means he can't be God. So what are some of those issues that began to emerge? So the popular book that I'm hoping to write, Lord willing, um, will be on the way that um, the way that Jesus has become sort of cultural icon. And, and what does that mean for us to think about Jesus afresh in our context of, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter or global pluralisms and all of that? So. Yeah, and Paul. First of all, there's just mm-hmm. like I'm just fascinated by everything you're you're saying, and just like the wealth <laughs> of, of of knowledge and history, and and it's it's a, it's amazing because I think even in thinking about this, like the, your fourth book that will be a, your more popular book, sort yeah. of naturally building on the third book. Yes, I think yes. it's also, I, I think it's <sighs> something that um, sort of presents a more natural progression there. And I also like I was really struck by. Um, just how vulnerable you were with with this process of wrestling with making this work more accessible, and how uh, the fourth book, the more popular book, um, is also being driven is being driven by your audience. That that it's mm. it's it's coming from the desire of your audience to to learn more and 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 to uh, and, and to see and to see this work that you've you've done a great job in doing can be more contextualized for now that you're better positioned they're they're identifying you as really well positioned to write about it and to do it and that's just testament to 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 your past books too well you're awfully kind you know i would just more psychologize my whole process and say (laughs) i'm the insecure one i want to be more than eight people say you know that's a good book so and also the desire to um really kind of think more broadly about life. I mean, you know, to be fair though, right? I mean, there are people who basically write for the guild and I think I, I, I think there's maybe there's an intrinsic desire for Christians to make their message and their life labor more accessible. And that could be the mm-hmm. pitfall of evangelical scholarship, I think. Because, you know, if I'm if I'm just uh, willing to be nerding out on zoology and I love, you know, but and that's my God-given calling. Why should I be bummed out that I'm not coming up with a vaccine for COVID-19, right? Because it, it, it's, it's a, this kind of pressure to be all things to all people that mm. can, what I would call, uh, incidentally and unintentionally dilute the sort of a, you know what I mean, the sort of super uh, granular pursuit of sub sub subspecialisms that I think should be allowed for within the kingdom of Jesus. And I, I, I mean, so I think it is that, that, yeah, so um, I don't know, I'm rambling on here, but I think there's something 
to be said for that. I think the, the, the understandable and superbly laudable desire to be all things to all people sometimes could mean that you forsake, you know, I don't know. I mean, thinking about the late J.I. Packer, for instance, um, you know, I think he told me because he, he worked on so this is my little credit. Um, uh, he worked on the same guy that I worked on for my Ph.D. on Richard Baxter. And I got to meet him when I was a graduate student and I asked him about his own scholarly trajectory. He said that, you know, he wrote Knowing God and that's not a I mean, theologians in the academy do not think that that's like the best theology book, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. But it sold more than a million copies, and so many people, and more importantly than that, so many people's lives have been tremendously impacted uh, for the kingdom of Christ because of the book Knowing God. And I think he said to me that he made a self-conscious choice sometime down the road that he did not want to be writing for eight people. He wanted to be writing for 80 people or 800, 8,000, whatever the number was. And it's not because of some desire for greater notoriety or prominence, but I think you have to, one kind of gets to a point of choosing who will be my audience. Sometimes it is self-imposed, sometimes it is other-imposed, and I would Mm -hmm. say that it all providentially orchestrated. Wow. Well, Paul, I want to make sure we get a chance to hear about you in the classroom. And um, so if if you would be kind to share with us... um, Mm -hmm. What you teach, and if you have a favorite class that you teach. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was just sharing this last Sunday from the pulpit of Christ Presbyterian Church that uh, the favorite class for me is uh, a class that I teach inside the maximum security prison in Nashville called Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. Mm-hmm. I teach a class called God and Human Suffering in Christian Perspectives. And so it is really, uh, you know, the, the theme of suffering, the theme of uh, theodicy, the, the 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 questions of why do bad things happen to good people and why don't bad people get you know whatever. Um, I think so. I've been teaching that almost every other year, and uh, it's been my favorite class because I learned so much about myself. I learned so mm-hmm. much about the privilege one has as a free person. I really um, and I've taught the same class inside. So what happens is that uh, valuable students, usually anywhere between 10 to 15 in number, go to this uh, maximum security prison with me, and we uh, do a, a large group seminar, about 25 to 30 people. And uh, it's uh, so it's insiders, namely the, 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 the brethren who are there inside this all-male prison. Um, and... Um, and, you know, Vanderbilt students were a co-ed and we really have a fantastic time of just, um, you know, it's a, it's a sort of what Bonhoeffer calls life together. And I think it is for that kind of two and a half hour segment of their life. Um, it's really meaningful for them. And, you know, I, I, I'll never forget um, one uh, one brother um, came up to me. He was uh, at Riverbend and uh, he told me that he really thanked me for the teaching and I said, oh, that's great. Oh, thank you. And and he said, well, you, do you know why? I said, no, uh, I, I wasn't going to go there. But tell me, sure. And he said, mm-hmm. you know what? Uh, he never graduated from high school and his high school dropout. And he said, you know, you are a tenured professor at Vanderbilt University. And you have told me several times that what I had to say was really meaningful and helpful for the conversation. And here's a here's a real shocker. He says, never in my life has any of my teachers ever said 
that what I did or said was meaningful or helpful or good or excellent. Oh, wow. And that just blew my socks off. Mm. How we need to be affirming people a little bit more, and especially inside that kind of industrial complex, carceral in, in industrial complex, I think the, the word that they often hear is no, not yes. And so that affirmation of God that is shown through in Jesus Christ is so I told him, look, you know, I know that you, you know, that, um, that I'm a Presbyterian minister. And for me, what matters more than anything else is that gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is God's resounding yes to me in the Lord. And so I think, you know, that kind of affirmation of my own identity and integrity and my own story is really helpful, and I think I experienced that. Uh, so I, I, I usually say I go there to learn together with my friends, and I think that's increasingly more of my attitude toward teaching. I think I used mm-hmm. to think that I'm here, um, you know, I'm there wherever to go and teach. I remember this story. Uh, we were interviewing, um, well, it's a story of a colleague, a potential colleague who was interviewed for a job. And he did a lot of work overseas um, in, in a different continent. And when the question is put to this uh, colleague, potential colleague, as to what he learns when he goes there, he looks slightly puzzled and said, what do you mean, what do I learn? I go there to teach. And that was an interview that I was part of when I was a little bit younger. And they left a deep impression on me. Mm-hmm. Am I here merely to dispense knowledge? What mm-hmm. is my attitude? Should my attitude be one of, Yes, I'm here to dispense something, but by being together in this particular time and space continuum with this particular group of students and friends, am I not also learning as well? Mm-hmm. And I think for me, pedagogically, as well as spiritually, I think really having the attitude that I am here to learn. I mean, I guess in that regard, I'm sort of a Francis Schaeffer um, um, kind mm-hmm. of a, a, a acolyte in that. God's truth, you know, all truth is God's truth, you know, whether it is uttered by somebody whose view on Jesus or Christology or Trinity, you know, Trinity differs from mine. But if, if, it, if it actually coheres with what I perceive to be the truth of God and truth about self and Savior and society, then I need to take that very seriously and I need to embrace that as truth. So I think my own institutional journey coming from a conservative evangelical place to a more progressive um, kind of progressive space, a secular space, um, has been uh, not without its, you know, impediments and hindrances and challenges and obstacles, but on the whole, um, I think it's been a very rewarding and meaningful journey. Uh, meaning and rewards cannot are not always visible to me, but as I was telling a friend of mine recently, and I was reminding myself, we walk by faith, not by sight. Well, to be totally exact, I walk by faith and by sight. <laughs> wow. Oh, this is, this is awesome. Um, we're out of time, but wow, yes. for our last episode of the season, for to, ha- to hear from you in these last few minutes, a charge of what it means to be a teacher and a learner, of what it means to be a researcher, of what it means to be a translator of knowledge to other audiences and a servant mm-hmm. of the church. I mean, I think you've kind of wow. all around our entire uh, podcast here. Yes. Uh, yeah. So thank you so much for being with us and for all of uh, this just amazing conversation. I look forward to reflecting more on it and I hope to see you soon. Yes. Yeah. Likewise. Thank and you. when you're in uh, in Nashville, please let me know. I was supposed to go up to uh, Wash U, um, but it never happened because of COVID. I was, I think, uh, 
What is the name in the English department? Abram Van Abram Van Engen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he and I were talking about maybe coming up to give a talk there, but COVID happened. So, um, but John and Panina, if you're ever in the Nashville area, I will buy you a nice uh, um, barbecue lunch or uh, <laughs> Nashville hot chicken. And oh, uh, yes. if, you're, if your drink of choice is coffee, I know a couple of places and. It is beer or bourbon or whatever. I know some places too. So it's a great, great delight uh, to be with you this morning or afternoon. Thank you, Paul. Thank you.